Over the next few minutes, I want to walk you through the final few verses of this wonderful story of Nehemiah as we are not finishing today. We'll do that over the next week, but we're coming close to finishing this teaching about a time to build. Before we do that, first off, just good morning. How are you doing today, family? Are you, are you with me this morning? It's so good to see you today, and I'm so glad that you're joining us here. And for our friends and family online, welcome as well. Glad that you're joining us uh, through the beautiful medium of technology. Uh, i got to tell you, I, I love this idea of competition. I'm a very competitive person. It doesn't mean I'm good at anything, but I'm very competitive as I lose. Anyone else with me on that this morning? <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter if you lose, just don't be last. Well, one of the fun things over the past few weeks has been watching the Olympics and all the stories that are coming out. Some of them have been very sensational. Some of them have been somewhat disappointing. And then others have been absolutely inspiring. In fact, I think one of the most inspiring moments was when I saw this moment take place a couple of weeks ago. I was blown away! This young woman, she is an Ethiopian-born woman who was a refugee, went to Holland at the age of 15 because of all the danger and damage in her home country. And in 2013, Hassan, that's her last name, she becomes a, a citizen of the Netherlands. And she becomes this phenomenal track star until what you just saw to, uh, this morning. She fell. And she was dropped to 15th place. And in a matter of less than 70 seconds, she passed 14 other runners, came in first. She won, over the course of the Olympics, a a bronze in the 1,500-meter dash. And she won gold in the 5,000 and the 10,000. Now listen, friends, I get winded going from here to my car. I can't imagine doing what she did. I love these kind of stories and these, these pictures. And here's what it stood out to me. Here's what stood out to me. It's an amazing thing what we just saw. Not because she was starting off strong, but because she finished strong. In fact, here's the one thing. As we kind of wrap up the teaching through this series, as we're coming to the final few verses, here's the big idea that we're going to see repeated over and over and over in chapter 13. And it is simply this. Our lives will not be defined by how we start, but by how we finish. Our lives will not be defined by how we start, but by how we finish. In fact, let me put it another way. I heard this from a gentleman some months ago. He said... People will not remember your finest hour or your finest chapter. They'll just remember your final chapter. Isn't it true that so many people that we've looked up to, we don't remember how they started. We don't even remember all the good things they've done. But if they fail or fall at the end of their lives, what do we all seem to remember? It's the failure at the end, isn't it? And what we see here in the text is over the course of 12 chapters, you see... God working, not through just one man, it has his name on it, the book, Nehemiah. But it is God working through the people who love him and who are following him. And over 12 chapters, you see this great thing that they begin to do. The city of Israel was completely destroyed from years earlier by the Babylonians. Then the Persians take power and Israel is still in exile. The Israelites are scattered about in their home city of Jerusalem, the capital The place where their temple was. The symbol of God's presence and God's protection 
is destroyed and gone. And Nehemiah, living 800 miles away in this capital city of Persia called Susa, hears word that the city of God is still in ruins and his heart is so broken for the city that he is compelled to do something about it. So he prays. How many of us know that where we need to always begin when we face a problem is with prayer? Because prayer is our first response. It's not our last resort. He prays. He's given permission by the king to go back not only to see the city, but to rebuild the city. And then the king doesn't just give him permission. The king pays for the rebuilding of the city. And over the course of 52 days, the people of Israel rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem. Although facing persecution and opposition, they did an amazing thing. But the job isn't done there because then after building the walls, there's a lot of people building that must be done. There are reforms that need to take place. And so as a consequence, chapters 8 through 12, you see them building up the people through the word of God, the community of faith, and through celebration of God. And now at the end of all this, we read that Nehemiah has gone back home to Susa. He's been away for 12 years. He left in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, And now, after everything is rebuilt, he leaves Jerusalem and returns to King Artaxerxes in his 32nd year, 12 years. But during those few months or years that he's away from Jerusalem, all the work that he began, all that they had done, begins to crumble and fall apart again. And so what I want to talk to you this morning is simply this. If it's true that our lives will not be defined by how we start, but by how we finish, then what I want us to talk about are what are those things, what are those those pulls that may cause us to drift off course, to stumble and fall. Because if your desire, and I think it is, if your desire is to be a man or woman of God whose life is marked by the presence, the power, and the purpose of God, if that is your desire, and I believe it is, then you need to know where the enemy may come, where he may attempt to sidetrack or attack you. And we see four different ways that we are prone to drift from within this text. And I want to show you what they are and then show you what to do about them. Here's the very first one. You might want to write this down. One of the first ways that we drift is we invite Tobias into our lives. We invite Tobias into our lives. How many of us remember Tobias, the little squirrely sidekick of chapter 4 who's making jokes? Do you remember this guy? He is every middle school kid's nightmare because he's scrawny, but he's hanging out with a bully, so he's able to be a bully himself. So what we see is in just a few verses while Nehemiah is away, something really unfortunate happens. Nehemiah is gone for 12 years, and when he gets back, we learn this, that Eliashib, the priest, the priest would be like the the leader of the community of faith, the religious side. Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God. The house of God is simply a euphemism or another phrase for the temple. He was closely, notice this, associated with who? Tobiah. And he had provided Tobiah with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. What's going on here? The priest of God has cleared out a room in the temple of God and invited Tobiah to come and have a house in the temple of God. Is anyone else just a little put off by that? That an enemy of God, someone who had been ridiculing God's people, 
actively trying to undermine God's purposes is now given a place in the temple of God that is not appropriate or good. And so Nehemiah shows up and he's like, what have you done? I think the first way that Josh Diggs, and maybe you as well, but Josh Diggs is prone to drift is to invite Tobias into my life. So Josh, what's a Tobiah? Well, a Tobiah is anything that displaces God. It can include morally neutral things. In other words, for Tobiah to have a place in the temple, they had to get rid of all the stuff for the temple. They had to push stuff out. Have you ever had something in your life that pushed the good things of God out of your life? Have you ever had something that may not be bad in and of itself, but it takes a place of prominence where only God ought to be? I know some of us may be drawing a blank. Let me give you some examples of this. One of my favorites is from a friend of mine named Joel Williams. He was a minister in Texas I got to serve with for a number of years. And he said, Josh, I'm convinced that one of the greatest Tobias, that's my word, not his, but his idea. He says, one of the greatest Tobias facing the affluent, comfortable American church is this, our children. I was like, what? Excuse me? I was like, do you not like kids? He goes, no, no, digs. Don't get me wrong. He says, I love kids, but many parents have exchanged worship of God for worship of kids. And he said, you want to know the word for that? It's called chidolatry. It's where you say that our kids' needs, desires, wants, preferences, everything is paramount. And instead of saying God is paramount and we will raise them to walk with him, we let God fit into the cracks around what we do for them first. Do you follow me? Now, are kids a bad thing? No. Scripture says children are a good gift from God. But if we take them and put them in the place where God is, if we have to clear out the good things of God, then we have missed the boat. And even a good thing becomes a bad thing if we use it in a bad way. Let me give you one more. I love sports. I know some of you just adore them as well. Quick question. For some of us, our sports become our life, don't they? So much so that if we have to choose between the people of God and a particular game or team, I know, oh, by the way, by the way, can you do me a real quick favor before I go any further this morning? Can you help me out here? Everyone, go ahead. Look down at your feet. Go ahead and just look down at your feet. Will you do that for me? And if you want to, go ahead and lift your feet up off the ground I, I, okay, because I'm going to step on some toes here, okay? Just, just lift them up if you don't want. Because here's the reality. Here's the reality. Some of us are more interested in what our team is doing or our kids' ball team or what's happening instead of being with a family of God. Now, does it mean that sports are bad? No. But anything that we put in and have to clear out the space that God resides for something else is allowing something, a Tobiah, in. And here's the reality. Once they come in, they are never content with the little space you give them. They will continue to take more. If you do not want to drift, if you want to finish the way that God has called you to finish, one of the first ways we drift that we need to be aware of is to keep away from and watch out for the little Tobias. In fact, here's what you do if you find a Tobiah. I was greatly displeased, this is Nehemiah, and, I love this, it looks, threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I got rid of all of it. I found that just because, just because, listen, listen, if there's something in my life that is not necessarily bad, but it is drawing me away from the Lord, or it is not cultivating a heart of holiness, then it is my responsibility to get rid of anything that keeps me from loving God more. And here's why. If God is the number one treasure, then why would I want to settle for anything less? 
So what do we see? What do we see? Here it is. Question. What Tobias do you need to throw out? Because here's the reality. In my life, maybe in yours as well, there are always Tobias, always things that are attempting to encroach into the landscape of my life. That's the first one. Here's the second one. Are you ready? I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them. I'll explain this in a moment. And that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, notice this question, why is the house of God neglected? You say, what does that have to do with anything? Here's what's going on. The Israelites, by God's decree, were commanded to participate in the religious ceremonies and services of Jerusalem. Now, some of this had to do with tithes and offerings, but it also had to do with participation and being present. You say, so what does this have to do with us? What, what kind of drift is this? We're not a temple worship kind of church, so what does this have to do with us? Here it is. Are you ready? The second drift is that we avoid committing to the church. Now, I want to be real clear here. This is one of those. I was talking to a friend earlier this week. I said, I don't want to talk about this part. I kind of like to skip it. He says, well, you can do that, or you can do what God tells you to teach. So... This is going to be awkward, but we need to talk for a moment here. God has called us as the family of faith to be a family. A healthy family does not simply show up for meals, but walk away while the dishes are still to be cleaned. You see what I'm saying? In our house, everyone has a job. Our kids have a job. Now, they're age-appropriate for their age, their stage, their development. And all of us may have different roles based on our age, our stage, and development. But... Christians are a part of a family. And one of the first ways I know when someone is beginning to drift spiritually, and this is true over 17 years of ministry, I've seen it over and over again. One of the first indicators we look for to see your health is we look at attendance, service, giving, and sharing. Did you know that? Because here's what happens. What's going on inside begins to come out in our actions. And if we are engaging with the Lord privately, we begin to engage more with the Lord publicly and corporately. But if I am pulling away from the Lord privately, it eventually spills out where I am pulling away from the Lord publicly and corporately. And here's why. If I am not walking with the Lord, then the things of the Lord become uncomfortable, awkward, or icky to me. It is like looking at something so brilliant like this light right here that's just slightly off and it's just right in the eyes. I mean, it's just you look at it and it's so bright. It is, it's, it's too much for my eyes. And what ends up happening is when I am walking in a direction apart from the Lord, his brilliance, beauty, and perfection is something that I am no longer drawn towards, but it pushes me away. Does this make sense? So what we begin to see here is the people of God have begun to ne- neglect the community of faith. You say, okay, well, so what's the, what's the way to fix this? If this is not the way God calls us to live, well, notice this. We'll skip through this. Go on to the next uh, section here. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the storerooms. So you have this little moment where actually Nehemiah goes on a tear, and the people go, okay, we'll re-engage. And here's the big idea. We avoid committing to the church. We avoid coming in relationships. So what's the way to do it? Have you come under spiritual leadership of a local church? Are you fully engaged in the community of faith? And I'm so glad you're here this morning. I'm so glad you're here. 
But you know that gathering in a big room on a Sunday for one hour is not what we mean when we say fully engaged in the body, right? This is a good place to be, right? Let's try this again, please. Help me out here, okay? Is it good to be together on Sundays, church? Yeah, it's so good. But listen, no matter how good the meal may be on Sunday morning, if you only eat once a week, you're going to be hungry. This is what it means to be a family of faith. We've talked about on Tuesday nights, we have missional community training that begins this week. Here's what this looks like for so many of us. It means that we go, we take... And there we go. And we get together and we learn what it means to be in fellowship together on mission. That is what it means to be fully engaged. And so for some of us, I'm just going to invite you, come be with us on Tuesday night. This may be your next step to be a part of what God is doing in this church. And to keep you going the way that you know you want to go already. Now, let me go number three real quick here. Third one is that we trust our power over God's provision. The third thing we see in this text is one of those real awkward moments. Because again, the people of God are doing something good, but they're doing it out of order. Here's what's happening. Notice it says, in those days, I, this is Nehemiah again, saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath. Very important, this word Sabbath. And bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. What's going on here? The people of God are working on the day that God has reserved for them to rest. The Sabbath was intended to be a good gift to God's people. See, do you understand? Let's just talk history for a moment here. Okay. Before the Jewish world, the Jewish culture emerged onto the world stage, did you know that, of course... It was common in the ancient world to work not five days a week or six days a week, but seven days a week. This was expected and normal. You want to know why? You worked so you could eat that evening. They did not have what you and I have. Maybe it's a fridge full of food or a pantry or a grocery store down the street stocked up or restaurants that you will go and have someone else prepare your food for you. What they had was what they made that day. And so if you did not work, you did not eat. And so Jesus, God, comes on the scene, tells his people, I'm going to give you a day every week where you do not have to work. Why? And they're saying, well, wait a minute. If I don't work, I won't eat. He goes, no, 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 no. You eat not because you work. You eat because I provide for you. In fact, in Deuteronomy, we're told that God is the one who gives us the ability to work. So when I as a man or you as a man or you as a woman go to work and we say, look what I have accomplished, look at what I've made, we are to be humbled by the reality that our ability, our intellect, our opportunities were all given by God. So ultimately, church, who is it who gives you everything you have? It's God. But the Israelites have forgotten this. They forgot that God did something through them in 52 days that they had not been able to do for years. Rebuild a city. They'd forgotten that God, through his beautiful grace, had liberated some who were having to sell their children into slavery because of high taxation rates. They'd forgotten the fact that God had provided for them and protected them against the enemies when they were doing the project. They had forgotten God. And the reality is one of the ways Joshua Diggs drifts and one of the ways the Israelites drift and one of the ways we drift is we forget about God's provision and we focus on our power. 
We think that for us to do what God wants us to do, it's all about me. I got to work hard. I got to, I got quick question. How many of you know that wonderful, famous chicken place that is always closed on Sundays? Anyone know what I'm talking about? And it's called? See, you won't give me an amen, but you will say Chick-fil-A. That's good. You know what's so interesting about Chick-fil-A? You look at their profits year over year, and they have continued to blow up. And yet they're closed on Sunday. Why is that? Is it because they're being legalistic? No. It's because their founder said, I never want to forget that all that I have is a gift of God and not because I'm smarter, stronger, faster than others. Friends, one of the biggest ways we drift often comes with success. When we see what we've been able to accomplish, we forget that it was God who worked through us. So, so here's, here's the way I'm just begging you to consider. The way to refocus on God's provision and return to God's help is whenever something good or bad happens, you simply say, blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and he takes away. I am his. He is mine. I trust him. From dust I came to dust I will go. But all the way through, God has been with me. It is God's good gift. I cannot trust on my power. I will trust on your providence and your provision. We begin to practice giving him praise for what he's done. All right, here's the last one. Here's the last one. What we see right before the end of this whole beautiful book, the people had let Tobias into their places of worship. The people had quit participating in the fellowship. The people had been neglecting the rest of God, thinking they had to do it themselves. And here's the fourth one. Are you ready? They outright invited or welcomed evil influences into their lives. Now, I'm about to be misunderstood by someone here, so please listen very carefully. I do not want to be tweeted about. I do not want an angry email or any of those things. Listen very carefully. Here's what's happening in the next verses. Notice this. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. What we're about to see is they had begun to intermarry with foreign women, pagan women. Now, here's where I don't want to be misunderstood. This is not a race thing. Now, in years past, some very misguided preachers would say this was an issue of race and you should not intermarry. That's not what's going on here at all. You want to know what's going on here? Notice these three locations. People, women from Ashdod, by the way, that's Philistia, the Philistines. Ammon, so that's the Ammonites. And Moab, that's the Moabites. They worship different gods than Yahweh. In fact, their three main gods were Dagon for Ashdod, Molech for Ammon, and Chemosh for, excuse me, for Ammon and Moab. You want to know what's interesting about all three of these? They were the king gods, the supreme gods, the ones who would provide for you and everyone else wouldn't. And you know the only thing they would require of you in exchange? The physical sacrifice of your child. Now, we don't have kids in this one, so I'll tell you just this one thing. Molech was particularly horrendous. It wasn't just to sacrifice your child. It was to sacrifice your child on a burning hot stone tablet with fire around it. It was basically like you were grilling your child. And this was the influence that was being brought into the Israelite camp. In fact... Nehemiah sees how even the smartest among us, when we welcome things that are not of God into the community of faith, into our own lives, he even sees it. Well, notice this. He says, was it not because of marriages like these with 
with people who were bringing things that were unholy and unhealthy into the relationship? Was it not because of marriages like these that even Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? By the way, who is Solomon, church? Do you remember him? The wisest man who ever lived. And yet, we're told, among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. The issue is not marriage. The issue is not skin color. The issue is saying there is someone who has a completely different worldview, value system, belief system, and I'm going to intertwine myself with them. And this is not just with people. It is when you invite certain things into the soul of your life through your eyes by what you look at. It's by inviting things into the soul of your life by what you allow to reverberate into your mind. That God's call for God's people, if you want to finish strong, see, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. If you want to finish strong, one of the most important things that we as Christ followers do is not be separatists from the world where we attempt to create a Christian subculture that is wicked and is unhelpful. But what we do is we guard our hearts and our minds in the world in which we live. We are thoughtful about the relationships. We are thoughtful about the people. We are thoughtful about our hobbies and our interests. We are thoughtful to say we will not welcome or introduce things. And here's the saddest thing to me is when Christ's followers welcome things into their lives and they'll say, well, yeah, I know it's not okay, but it's funny. Or, yeah, I know it's not right. But, by the way, you understand that whenever you hear the word but, it invalidates anything that came before that. I love you, baby, but I found someone else. Baby ain't listening to what happened before the but. She's only listening to what happens after, correct? And as Christians, as Christians, I so desperately want you to finish strong. And one of those ways that we often drift is when we allow or welcome things into our lives that we have no business welcoming into our lives. And I, I, I want you to look at this list here. Tobias can be new, morally neutral things that come in and just keep us from living a holy life. We avoid committing to the church. We trust our power over God's provision. And we welcome evil influences into our lives. These all seem disconnected, but do you understand all of these happen and are interrelated? As I am engaging with the body of faith, I am beginning to be transparent and confessional with the areas of life that I struggle with. By the way, your preacher struggles. Did you know that? Let's try this again. Did you know that I'm human too? Yeah. And guess what you do too? I I, I love church, but I also hate this. Here's why. On Sunday, we only see the pretty versions of you. No one comes in here wearing their heartbreak. No one comes in here wearing their Sunday worst. We only come in with our Sunday best. And it often masks what's really going on. If you want to finish strong, you are deeply committed and engaged in the body of faith. Because you and I need one another. Not simply for encouragement, but for confession. We Get rid of the things that are morally neutral but keep us from holiness in God. We reject things that are evil on their face that do not have any hope or any participation with God. And we trust, we trust, we trust God's provision. We trust God's provision. We recite his goodness. We recite his glory. We recite how he has taken care of us. This is what we do to finish strong. 
And as we've come to the conclusion of this chapter, here's a simple question I just want you to ask this morning. Of those four things, is there one in particular that you face this morning that you go, man, I I may be drifting a little bit. I got some things that I like, but they're not bad, but boy, they're just pulling me from holiness. Or or you know what? I, I find myself not engaging more, but engaging less with the body of believers. Or, or I just, I, I know I'm, I'm very talented. I know I'm very good, but, but I, I'm, I'm sometimes exchanging the truth that God gives me what I have and thinking that I'm the one who's doing it and he simply blesses it along the way. Or, or maybe some of us are saying, no, no, there are things in my life that I have got to cut out at the source, be done with entirely. Because here's the thing, here's the thing. There's coming a day, church, when we're going to hear the trumpet sound of Jesus Christ. Is anyone else excited about that, by the way? Let me just paint for you a picture. Revelation gives it to us. He says, we're told that there's coming this moment when all of history comes to an end. When the sky itself will somehow, in ways I don't understand, literally be rolled back like a scroll. What's behind the sky? I have no idea, but I am so excited to find out. And there will be the sound of a trumpet blast unlike anything you've ever heard. It will be piercing and loud and beautiful and moving. And in that moment, all of creation, not just heaven and earth, but everyone, including those under the earth, those who have already died, who have rejected Christ, everyone will know he is back. And it is over. And the work of our hands, the toil of our lives, the things that we have committed to today, today... It is either worth it or not worth it. And I desperately want you to finish strong. Because it doesn't matter where you begin. It doesn't matter what kind of life you started. It matters how you finish. And this should be great news for everyone here this morning. Because some of us have started off in pretty lousy places, haven't we? Let's try this again. All of us have started off in lousy places. Because all of us were not simply aliens from God. But we were enemies of God because of our sin. That's where we begin. But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, He came, He died on a cross, He gives you His life. But not only His life, He gives you His righteousness. Do you know what this means? When God sees you, He doesn't see the pig pen character from Charlie Brown anymore. He sees His cleaned up, beautiful son, Jesus, superimposed over your life. And He is now saying, you're my beloved child. Now stand strong, run hard, and finish well. Because he's coming back, and it will be worth it. Your life will not be defined by how you begin, but by how you finish. May we finish well to the glory of God. Amen.